Jesus' name, amen. amen. Would you please open your Bibles and find your, your way in your Bibles into the book of Zechariah. This ancient book that the ancient Hebrews would have referred to as Zechariah. We enunciate it as Zechariah. Would you find Zechariah? This morning we are going to be picking up our sermon series that is entitled, Faithful to Fulfill a Study of God as Revealed in the Post-Exilic Scripture. As you know, the Bible is a library of 66 books and they sweep through different eras of history. And so we are stepping into an era in a section of the Bible known as the Post-Exilic Era. So before we get into the seventh chapter of Zechariah, which is where we left off in this series, Faithful to Fulfill, we need to review where we left off and we need to get into the context of this ancient book, Zechariah, that we're studying. And more importantly than studying this book, we are hearing this book preach to us as a congregation we are, we are hearing the command of the law of God as it is preached. We are, we are hearing the call of the gospel in light of the law of God, which calls us, Delray Church, in corporate worship on Sundays to respond in repentance and faith to the ministry of God's word. So then, as we're getting into this sermon that I've entitled today, Fasting in Future, let me begin the sermon with a review of the plot line of the text so that we can get into this and we can hear the word preached and respond to the call of the law and the gospel. Now, a moment ago, I mentioned the context of the ancient book of Zechariah. This book really does not stand alone. It belongs to a collection of of books in this section of the Bible that we refer to as the post-exile. These post-exilic texts include narrative books and prophecy books. So two, two kinds of genres, narrative and prophecy. The prophetic books are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Uh, these three books, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are, are the, these are the prophetic books. These prophecies speak forth to the people of God about what was before them, hence they speak forth, to what is before them. And these prophetic books, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, also speak of a future that is to happen beyond what is going on in their present. So that's the prophecy, those three books, Haggai or Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And then there's these three history books. So just as there's three prophecy books, there's three history books. They are Ezra, Nehemiah, or we say Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And these give us the history of this period of time. This period involves three waves of exiles coming out of captivity that are attached to the historical figures Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. You can see on the slide in front of you those three waves, and you also have on the back of your outlines this graph for you to, to be able to orient yourself to the text. So thus far in this series, we have studied the beginning waves with Zerubbabel and Ezra. We were studying the book of Ezra, and we got all the way through the fourth chapter, and we found our way to the fifth chapter in Ezra, where we read the mention in Ezra 5 of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And so, so then we, we left Ezra chapter 5 in order to go to those prophets that were mentioned so that we can study these books chronologically. And we made our way over to Haggai and we worked our way through Haggai and then we stepped into Zechariah and we started studying Zechariah. And, and so we have these two great post-exilic prophets. And later in this series we will meet the last post-exilic prophet, Malachi. So this period, it's known as the post-exile because it was the era of history after hence post the exile, or often referred to as the captivity of the people of Israel. It was an exciting period of homecoming for Israel. This is, this is the homecoming. 
You see, 70 years earlier, the people of Israel lost their homeland and they suffered in exile, captivity. Due to the sins of the nation, God had justly removed them from their land. They lost everything. They lost their homes, their jobs, their children. In many cases, they lost their lives. Along with it, they lost their culture, their language, their way of life. It was gone. Gone. And most tragic of all, they lost, many people lost, their faith. And with their faith being lost, they lost their calling from God to be the priesthood for the world. Now, priests are mediators that, that stand between God and creation. They, they mediate. Uh, a mediator is someone who, who comes between two parties that are at odds with one another. It, it doesn't take long to, to look at creation, to, to watch the news and see that creation is at odds with the Creator. We are in dire need of mediation. And so God raised up this people to, to be just that, to be a priesthood, to be mediators be between himself and between fallen humanity. And, and, and that was their role, to be, be priests. And along with that priesthood, God gave them a temple. And, and the temple would be a, a place of mediation. And so, so in losing their homeland and their jobs and their, their lives and their, their faith, they lost their temple. They lost their temple. And this isn't just any old architectural structure, mind you. This, this, this was designed by God himself. We look at the great architecture around the world, you see these great buildings and tall skyscrapers, and we marvel at what the hen's men can do, and this, this was done by God. This was designed by God. And it was designed by God not to be this you know, mere piece of, of architecture that, that people would look at so that it'd be on the list of the seven wonders of the ancient world or whatever. No, no, no. It was designed to be a porthole from the heavens to the earth. This is a magical place where, where the heavens are, are actually touching the earth, where God is manifesting himself, his, his very own presence in that architectural structure. So this is a, a place in the fallen world where, where, where God is manifesting his presence. It's a chosen place mediated by a chosen people. And as Israel came in, in faithful worship to God to, to that place, and as Israel served in her calling to be a priesthood to the fallen world, and as, as Israel walked in, in service to the divine commands of the Torah, the great law of, of the prophet Moses, the people were tilling the soil of the fallen earth for an ultimate renewal, a restoration of the paradise that was lost by Adam and the children of Abram. Adam, of course, is the father of the fall. He's, he's the father of God's creation and humanity. Abram is the father of faith. He was renamed Abraham. He, he is the head of God's covenant, the healing of creation and humanity. Uh, one was a father, Adam, who ushered in death by his works. The other, Abram, is a father who ushered in faith by God's works Though deserving of destruction for rebelling against their creator, God spared humanity and God spared the earth. Though, though fallen, he spared us and, and continues to give us, us life and has this way that he's working out in human history to redeem a people for himself. Though undeserving of his grace, God gave Abram, Abraham an unconditional, an unconditional promise. And he promised him that he would one day have a land, that he would have a progeny, that he would have prosperity for his family in that place, that land. 
and, and that, that that prosperity wouldn't just be for his family, it would be for the peoples of the earth as God was calling a people unto himself to redeem from the fallen creation. That, that temple, that, that place where the heavens are coming back into the earth brings us back to the place that was lost from our father Adam where you had no separation of the heavens and the earth. God's in the cool of the garden with humanity, but with our rebellion against God, there's a separation and hence a need for a mediation and hence God's election of a people to be those mediators. The promise in, in, in this era of pre-exile, before they were booted out of the land, that promise, the soils were being tilled and, and they were you know, in this role of mediation and they're, they're in this land, Abram's progeny, they're in the land of promise and, and God is establishing His presence from heaven to the earth in Israel's temple. Let me give you a, a picture of this. This was to serve as a light. His presence was to shine among the people and to draw not just the people to come, but the neighboring peoples of the earth to come and to see this light and be transformed by the temple. Specifically to be transformed by the God whose presence indwells the temple, this sacred space. And sadly, the children of Israel didn't walk in faithfulness to God. Specifically, they rebelled against the Torah of God given by the prophet Moses to guide them in true spirituality, to guide them to, to see Jesus, the Redeemer, in the, in the Torah. It was pointing to Jesus, the Redeemer, to guide them not just in seeing the shadows of Jesus, the Redeemer, but to guide them in seeing society and justice and righteousness. The Torah, the law, was to guide them in society and justice and righteousness. The Torah was to guide them in giving them the shadows of Jesus, the Redeemer. Having disobeyed the law of God, they often justly came under the punishment and the consequences of the law of God. And so the exile, getting booted out of the land, was one of the consequences or the punishments of that. And it's, it's fitting. God, God laid it out in the Torah. This, this is what I want your society to be like. This is what I want your spirituality to be like. And when, when you don't do that, here's the consequences. And so they're out of the land. Now, in grace... God, however, did not allow the weight of the law to fall on his people. The just judge, with every right to throw the proverbial book at the guilty, chose in love to provide a way for the guilty to have their guilt lifted and to bring them back to the land, and more importantly, to bring them back to him. Coming back to God and getting right with him is shown all throughout the law of Moses and the sacred writings of the people in the Hebrew Bible. As well, it was shown in, in the rituals of the priesthood in, in the temple where you have these innocent things that give their lives in the, in the place of guilty. You have sacrifice, and you see an innocent life that is taken, and, and, and its life is, is, is given and as a substitute in the place of a guilty. And so you have this ritual that is pointing to, to a God who's going to provide a way, the shadows of Jesus the Redeemer. Most notably in the sacrifices, then we see how Jesus would be called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That has both a soteriological language that he stands in our place. It has eschatological language that the lamb will conquer in the final days. But when you see something like a lamb, something seemingly innocent, this innocent animal that gives its life in the place of a, of, of a, of a mortal man who sins, you think to yourself, why? You know, why is death deserved? Why does something have to die? Because sin is an act of rebellion against the giver of life, and so the punishment that fits that crime is the taking back of life. We have rebelled against the giver of life, and so he justly and rightly takes back life. 
Now, talk of rebels has a way of making sinful humans think of other people. You know, rebels, oh, they, yeah, those, those people I see on the news, you know, my guy's always talking about them or whatever. Those are the rebels out there. You know, we, we see those rebels and those bad guys out there. The, the minister of God speaks of this rebellion, and hearers may miss that you are included in the indictment. I am included in the indictment. I'm talking about myself up here when I speak of rebels. I'm talking about you. Listen to me, church. This brings me no joy to say this, but we are sinners. We deserve death. Every morning that we wake up is a gift from God. We don't deserve it. And what, what, while this doesn't bring me any joy to say this, what brings me great joy, however, to say is that God is gracious and in the history of Israel that we are studying and in our sacred scriptures, we see that God has provided a way to make us right, to clear our records, to cleanse us, to pardon us, much more to forgive us, to adopt us, and to love us. And further, to use us in the world for extending his grace and his truth and his justice and his love. Israel's history and scripture reveals that God is working among his people to this end, that God was, was bringing his people back to the land in spite of their sin. They did nothing to deserve coming back. This is a display of his grace. And, and through these post-exilic books, God is preserving his work and his, and his truth in these books so that his people in this age and in the ages to come as the Lord tarries, we can turn to these texts and we can see the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. Isn't he good? Now, speaking of, of his goodness, speaking of seeing it in the word, I hope you have Zechariah open. We left off at chapter 7, but before you turn to chapter 7, just go ahead and turn to chapter 1. The book of Zechariah opens with a call to repentance. The book reminds them, hey, you guys didn't do anything to come back here. This was an act of God's grace. Respond to him in repentance and faith. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. It begins by saying, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. And after this opening, the prophet receives an extended vision and he prefaces it in like manner. Look at verse 1, compare it with verse 7. And again, you see the phrase, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. If you have your own Bibles, you can highlight that. Verse 1, verse 7, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, that repetition. Now, right after this, look at verse 8. And in verse 8, he describes that, that he sees a vision. He sees something. And verse 8 and, and following all the way through to chapter 6, verse 15, we have a series of eight what we call night visions. I'll put them in, in front of you so you can see them in, in, in order here. And you look at verse 8 there and he says, I saw. And then if you just, you know, quickly just, just kind of move with your hands through the text. Don't read it, but just look at the verses and skim through, turn a couple pages and find your way to the end of chapter 6. You, you, you see these eight visions. They are, if you stop on some words and some of the images in them, you, you find apocalyptic language. It's filled with rich cultural imagery. If, if you weren't here for the sermons, I took two uh, Sundays to move through them. And, and frankly, it's a, it's a hard section because of the rich cultural imagery and the apocalyptic language. It would be, in fact, hard to interpret. Uh, for Zechariah, who was experiencing these visions, to even know what they meant, it would be extremely hard to interpret these things for him, let alone for ourselves. So thankfully, in God's providence, these visions are interpreted by a supernatural angel who was commissioned by God and sent to the prophet to unpack the meaning of the revelation for the prophet and for the people. 
as the prophet, by the inspiration of the Spirit, recorded these things down so that we have this angelic and right interpretation of the visions. Now, following the visions, the book of Zechariah moves to now get into some historical markers and prophecy. And that's where we left off chapter 7, verse 1. Let's get into it. Verse 1, in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Let's pause, let's soak the verse in. What is the text telling us? Now, for starters, it is telling us the source of the word that we are reading. It says the word of the Lord came, which joins it, which joins it to the, this seventh chapter. It joins it, the seventh chapter, to the opening chapters, which I just asked you to look at. We saw the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, that repetition. Now, more than making a literary link, chapter 7, to the beginning of the text, this is making a heavenly link. This serves to say to both Zechariah and to the people, this is from God. This is from God. Indeed, this is why we have to handle the text with so much care. And we strive to do so in our church at Delray. We want to handle the text with care. This is why we take the time. When I preach, I'm known notoriously for these long introductions that give you all this context because I want to take care with this text. This, is, this isn't mortal. This is heavenly. This is divine. To be sure, God superintended to use mortals to get the text uh, out for us, but this is a product of, of, of God, and so we want to handle it with care. We want to make sure why we're stopping now even to make sure that each word, that each word is heard and loud and clear as it's handled with exactness and correctness. This is from God, the King of Heaven. Now, speaking of kings, note the earthly king, Darius, is described and the fact that the word of the Lord is mentioned in proximity to the, to the king Darius is to remind the reader who the true king is and who is really in control. That reminder was needed. For you see, the people, though heading home out of exile, were nonetheless heading back to a land that was yet still under foreign power. Babylon took the land from Israel. The Medo-Persian took the land from Babylon. And now old Darius, old Darius, he's just letting the people move into his rental property, if you will. And like landlords in many places of the country, including the great city of Los Angeles, the places are run down and they're not fixing it up. The only thing that's going up is the rent. The only thing that's going up is their blood pressure with the thought of doing repairs and actually being fair. Now that said, in the historical narratives, we can deduce that Darius is keenly interested in his property, however, uh, and he has people there to sort of scope out the property, property managers, if you will, making sure things are going well. You see, the people had moved into the property, and they were renovating, and, and they were building, and they were, they were actually making it nicer than the way their slumlord had given it to them. And though I compare him to a slumlord, we could also say that Darius was gracious in sending the exiles home, and he actually even sent them with a bounty that, that Babylon took from them, you know, some of the stuff from the temple and what have you. And so you, you might say, well, Darius was nice in that regard, that was gracious of him, but, you know, let's say gracious sort of tongue-in-cheek here, because it's in his political interest to secure his allies, to secure his borders. They're on my border. I want to keep them happy. You know, they, they go down there, do their thing, and now they'll be indebted to me, you see. Darius is in control. He's pulling the strings. Little did he know he wasn't in control. The word of the Lord came. God's in control, not Darius. It reminds me of Herod when he thought he was pulling the strings, running around town trying to do his thing. But the word of the Lord came to Mary. The word of the Lord came to Joseph. 
The word of the Lord came to shepherds in the field and Magi from far away. The word of the Lord had come. God was in control. God was bringing about the redemption of human creation and the sending of the Son who would become a man and die in the place of men and live in the place of men and rise up in the place of men. But there is old Herod thinking he has it underway. So the way the text begins in noting Darius and noting the word of the Lord in juxtaposition serves as a literary tie to the beginning to say this is the same word, but it's not just a literary tie. It's a heavenly tie to show who the true king is and who is in control. The prophet Zechariah specifies that the word of the Lord came in the fourth day of the ninth month. If you're interested, that would correspond to December the 7th, 518 B.C. Now, the correspondence to December isn't really significant to, to us. You go, oh, whatever, December, that's when I'm trying to hang my lights and I feel behind or whatever. But that, that wasn't what would have popped in the minds of the people when you heard December the 7th, when you, when you heard of the ninth month. That, that wasn't significant to them. So in their culture, let's try to understand this. Three things to note. First, in the Hebrew tradition, Kislev is known as the month of dreams. The traditional Torah readings for the month in Ya'eshev and Miketz, these traditional readings record visions and dreams. From the section of the book of Genesis in these readings, and most notably, uh, during this month, you're reading about Joseph's great visions. Remember the vision of Joseph and the ladder that goes to heaven. You'd, you'd be reading that in this month. It was, it was part of your, your, a part of the rhythm of the people in their reading of God's word. Now, considering Zechariah had just finished these eight-night dreams, the month of Kislev is very fitting because it is a month of dreams. As well as the association with dreams, the month of Kislev is tied to darkness. You see, in Israel, in the ninth and tenth months, they are physically the darkest of the years. This, this is when the evening uh, and, and the darkness of, of the evening are longer than any other time of the year. So the imagery of darkness is actually fitting when compared to the historic scene of the darkness of the hearts and people being pulled into darkness and the prophets coming to call them, repent, repent, come, you, you've gotten too far into the darkness, come back. Now judging by the look at things, one could easily miss that they were in darkness because it seemed like on the surface everything was going well, which we'll talk about, and that's why we need the revelation of the text of Zechariah to say, no, they were actually in darkness so three things about the text. That's the first of Kislev, dreams and darkness. Secondly, the fourth year of Darius was a time when things, and I made mention of this a moment ago, were looking good. The people were back in the land. The people are actually building their city. They're living their lives. Things are looking good. Recall in our study of Haggai, uh, we saw that they were building really nice homes. Haggai talks about them building these really nice homes. And, and he doesn't say this as a good thing. You might say, oh, nice homes, that sounds nice. They were doing nice. No, he sees this as a, as a bad thing. They were getting their American dream. They were getting their taste of suburbia. You can imagine their Instagram pages were changing with photos of their new living rooms and their new backyards and their new this and their new that and everything was looking really great and their new cars and whatever. Everything was looking great, but there was a problem. They had settled into the lure of comfort and materialism. And they had forgotten why God had called them and ordained them to carry his mission in the face of suffering and discomfort. In, in my own life, I, I, my, my, my red flags, my spidey senses, my spiritual spidey senses go up, not, not, in, not in times of darkness, but in times of comfort. 
when things are when things are going right and things are fitting in it's so easy to get pulled into that to start to start spending time and money and thought and energy and worry even whatever over over the things that are in this life and living as though this is your best life now when when we realize in God's word the best is yet to come they were living for their homes and Haggai the prophet comes and, and, he, and he calls it out he goes look at you guys look at your paneled houses he says look at all your stuff where's the temple though what, what are you spending your time on everything looks great oh everything looks great but what are you living for and so, so the fourth year of Darius serves as a marker where it's a time of prosperity for the people and things are looking good and the prophets are coming to pull that back and say, no, 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 it's not looking good. So, so this verse is reminding us of dreams, darkness. It's reminding us of this prosperity. The date was a reminder that they were without excuse in failing to be faithful to their mission in serving God who had been so faithful to them. As Hebrew scholar Dr. Radelnik notes, since the book was written some 30 years later, that, uh, having been in the land that long, three decades, Zechariah included this to remind them that the promises had not yet been fulfilled. You'd be, you've been there, and you're focused on your materials instead of the mission. In fact, in between the opening date in chapter 1, verse 7, that, that we saw, and I asked you to turn to, so that you have the context in mind, two years have lapsed since that beginning word of the Lord that had come. So, so two years, you know, this sort of Rona, right? And the cultural madness that, that we've gone through, and the ways that Rona and cultural madness have actually gotten people off mission. People who were, you know, together for the gospel. People who were on mission together who, who, you know, parted ways and chaos that came with this. And so, so the prophets are coming going, what is going on? Two years? What, what is going on? You're still stalled. You're still divided. You're still in the darkness. And God wasn't sending the prophet to, to come at them with this shaking hand to condemn them. The prophet is coming with a light boat to rescue them. Say, let me get you out of this. Hear, hear the grace of God as the prophet is coming to remind them of the time. This is Kislev. What are you doing? And speaking of the time, I said this detail in the text about time serves a threefold purpose. So first, Kislev is associated with dreams. Zechariah's having dreams. It's associated with darkness. He's calling them out of the darkness. Second, Kislev is a reminder of mission and they're compromised to live for comfort. Third, Kislev was a sobering reminder about the time that was at hand. What do I mean? Well, scholars note that the month of Kislev reflects the Babylonian name for the month. So that's sort of sobering. The name reminded them of the powers that were over them, of the darkness that was over them. Kislev derived its name from Ara Kislemu. Ara Kismelu is a month that is devoted to the Mesopotamian god Nergal. Nergal is a, is a deity that is tied to war, death, and disease. So when they hear that name, they hear pagan god, war, death, disease. And in light of this, when you hear the phrase, the word of the Lord came in Kislev, put it in context. The God of Israel is sovereign over the war of Babylon against his people. The, the, the God of Israel is sovereign over death and disease. Indeed, when you follow the storyline of the Bible, you see the God of Israel has revealed his holy transcendent being, eternally dwells in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We see that he defeats disease and death in the incarnation, life, execution, and resurrection of the Son, who is Israel's Messiah, and his name is Jesus, and he is the Lord, and he is the Word. 
the revelation of the Father to fallen humanity who by the Spirit adopts us into his family, and Israel is the beginning of that family through Father Abram. And so the, the people, Israel, have been called to himself to be this redeemed remnant through whom the Messiah is going to come. And Zechariah prophesies of, of that Messiah who would come, and that was yet future to him, but he also speaks forth in the present to them, and he also speaks of things future even to us to this day. It's an incredible book. And that said, let's look at what he says. Some two years have passed, and the people are still falling into this darkness and seeking after comfort and living for things other than the mission. Verse 2, we read, Now the reason, now the, the town, excuse me, of Bethel had sent Shar Ezer and Regem Melech and their men to speak of the, of the uh, to seek, excuse me, the favor of the Lord. The people send a, a, a word. They, 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 want to, they want to find something out. They, they want to find something out. They want to talk to the, the priests. And that brings us to the next point on the outline there. We move from the review of the pot line to the request of the priests. Now the town of Bethel, look at it, verse 2, sent Shar Azer and Regem Melech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. The people send this, the, these, these guys to go. As we continue reading, we'll see that they have a word for the priests. They have a word for the prophets as well. Of course, we know what prophets and priests are. They're leaders in the house of Israel, the mediators of the, of the creation, the fallen creation. The prophets and the priests are charged by God to watch over the people to care for their spiritual and social needs. The prophets call out, for example, social things like the poor and the marginalized and how they're treated in society. As well, they call out for the people spiritual things to remind them of what God has done and what God requires of them. The priests, like the prophets, they similarly uh, respond to certain social things and certain spiritual things, and they serve in the temple, most notably with sacrifices. And so we know who the priests and the prophets are, but who are these guys, Shar Ezer and Regem Melech? Uh, you know, people have Bible names. I, all of my kids have Bible names. Have you ever met a Shar Ezer and a Regem Melech? Who are these guys? Now, a lot of ink gets spilled on verse 2, and for sake of time, we're not going to get into it, but it's very likely to, to say from the text that they are a delegation with some kind of a formal authority. Scholars note that their names are Assyrian-sounding, or they could be Hebrew versions of Babylonian names, and that's significant. So they might not be Jewish, uh, or they could be Jewish, but, but in which case they have uh, foreign pagan names that they would have received during that captivity and that exile. So they got pagan names. You think of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you know, Daniel, they, they were given pagan names. So the people had assimilated into the culture during the captivity. We know that. They, they started giving their, their children pagan names so that they can fit in. You know, when you don't belong from a certain culture, you move to a different land, it, it's common sometimes to give your kids a different name. You, you might have a name that in your homeland sounds peculiar and you go, hey, you know, it, well, it doesn't sound home, peculiar in your homeland, but you move to another country and you're like, no one here has named that. So I'll just give them a name that matches the culture. You sort of assimilate into the culture. In which case, Shar Ezer and Regem Melech are reminders of a not too distant past. They're reminders of days of darkness, their names are. We think about North America and the impacts of the transatlantic slave trade and how slaves were given the surnames of their masters. And so, you know, you have Joneses and Johnsons and Smiths rolling around and, and, and Williams and, you know, and it's like uh, that, I, that was the name of a master that was given to your ancestors. But what was your name? What was your family's name? It's gone. What, what was Shar Azar and Regem Melech? It, it's, it's gone. 
you, you, you go on Ancestry.com and, you know, if your ancestors are from Europe or whatever, I mean, my wife can trace it all the way back, you know, I'm all the way back into, into England and find where the Joneses were from and find the tickets from the Mayflower where, you know, like she's got it all figured out, you know. But if you were, if your ancestors were taken to the slave trade, it's, it's just gone. That history is just gone. And there's names that don't match and it reminds you of that. And things happen in the culture that remind you of that. Shar Azer Regem Melech, the readers hear those names and they go, captivity, exile, oppression. Regem Melech literally means a friend of the king. A friend of the king who killed your people? Israel's without a king. This isn't a reference to Israel's king. This is a reference to the pagan kings who killed your people. Shar Azer is an Assyrian name that means may the deity protect our king. The deity, of course, is not the triune god of scripture, it is the pagan gods. In fact, we, 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 we reach of another Shar Azer in scripture in Jeremiah 39 verse 3, and Shar Azer in Jeremiah 39 3 is called Nergal Shar Azer, and I shared with you earlier with regard to the month of Kislev and it being devoted to the pagan god Nergal. Nergal, protect the king. And so, so paganism, darkness of the past, the town that is mentioned here in verse 2, uh, uh, it also reminds you of paganism. Look at, the, look at the text. What's the town's name? Bethel. Now, Bethel is a city about 10 to 12 miles north of Jerusalem, near the southern border of the former northern kingdom of Israel, the kingdom that fell to Assyria, which would fit the Assyrian-sounding names. Let me give you a graph of this so you can see it. Now, recall that Israel had 12 tribes. They were once a united kingdom that divided into the north and the south. The north took 12 tribes in that great disaster of a division, and the south took two tribes with it. The northern kingdom unraveled first morally and socially. They fell. They were conquered by Assyria. Subsequently, the south also, Babylon devastated them and sent them into exile and captivity. So Bethel was in the north, and Bethel in the days of division, became a place of pagan worship and syncretism. You can read about this in 1 Kings 12, Amos 3, Amos 4, Amos 7. The northern king, Jeroboam, actually made a worship center in Bethel with a golden calf, and he did this to rival the true worship of God in the temple, the portal of the heavens of the earth in Jerusalem. They were supposed to make Shalash Relagim, pilgrimages, to go to Jerusalem. But when the kingdom was divided now in the north, they go, oh, don't make your pilgrimages down there. Make them up here. So they made Bethel as an alternative pagan place of worship. As well, they made a pagan hub in Don. So the northern tribes would forsake the holy temple in Jerusalem in the south. Those of you who came on my Israel trip but took you to Bethel and also to Don and you saw the archaeology of it, you saw where they used to engage in pagan worship there. In the Hebrew Bible, there are repeated laments about these pagan sites, Bethel and Don. Bethel, it pulled the people into paganism. It pulled them away from the worship of the true God in Jerusalem. The irony, of course, is that Bethel means the house of God, but this was not God's house. This was not God's temple. Now, the name house of God goes back to the patriarch Jacob, Jacob, when he was running from his brother Esau, and Esau wanted to kill him, but God graciously gave him a vision. And so Jacob said in Genesis 28, verse 17, while he was at Bethel, and I quote, there is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And so the tradition goes back to Jacob. Remember what I said also about the month of Kislev and dreams? Remember what I told you about the readings of dreams, Jacob's ladder? You, you see the association of these themes. Now, perhaps because of Jacob, 
This might have been used as justification by the northerners to, to create an alternative temple there. But, but it became paganized nonetheless. And under the law of Moses, there was one place where God was manifesting his presence, where he would till the lands and restore creation. It was to come from the temple. So now you have a delegation of men with these pagan names coming from a pagan place. So as you're reading the text, you're going, oh yeah, you know what? If that wasn't explained to me, I would have read right past it. Oh, Bethel, Sharazer, whatever, Regalim. Okay, I don't know what that means. But now you, you, you see the richness of the text. Verse 3, speaking to the priests who belong to the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets saying, shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? So they got a question. What's going on here? What are they asking? Well, they're asking about the ritual of fasting, which brings us to the next point on the outline. We move from the review of the plot line, the request of the priests to ritual and purpose. The guys from Bethel want to know if it's kosher to stop fasting. Traditionally, the Jewish people would fast around Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, as a part of humbling themselves and the self-denial that Moses talks about in Leviticus 23. Fasting isn't specified, but that, that's a fitting thing in response to what Moses wrote in Leviticus 23. And so around that holy day, you, you would fast. That was the day of fasting. Now, however, with the fall of Jerusalem and the temple, the Jewish people added more times of fasting. In fact, Bible scholars believed, and let's look at these really quick, if I can have your attention up here, four specific times. The fasts that are mentioned in 7.3 of Zechariah and verse 5 and 8.19 are thought to commemorate the following events. One, the fifth month, the destruction of the temple. Two, the fourth month, when the wall of Jerusalem was breached. Three, the seventh month, the murder of Gedala, who was the governor of Judah in the southern kingdom when it fell. And then fourth, the tenth month, beginning with the siege of the city by Nebuchadnezzar. So they had these four times of fasting that was developed. In the text of Zechariah, we read the mention of the fifth month. That's the month you see up here that is tied to the burning of the temple. So the guys come from Bethel, these guys with these pagan eggs from the pagan land, they come up and they want to go, okay, so we're, our lives are back. We've got our, you know, we've got our, uh, you know, our new Israel suburbia, like things are looking cool. There's some people building the temple. I mean, it's not done yet, but do we still have to do this fast thing? I mean, come on, you know, I mean, we're back in the land, you know, things are getting built, things are happening. Do we still have to do this fast thing? I mean, you know, we've been doing it, you know, we've been doing it. Uh, we've been faithful to God, you know, will he, you know, can we stop doing it now? Verse 4, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying. I'm going to say something in the sermon about the title that is given to God here, the Lord of hosts, but for sake of gaining some momentum, let's keep reading. God's going to answer, God's going to answer through the prophet to the people. Draw your eyes to the text, verse 5. Say to the people of the land and to the priests, when you fasted and you mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and you drink, do you eat for yourselves? Do you drink for yourselves? Are not these the words which the Lord proclaimed to the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous among with its cities around it and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? God gives Zechariah some rhetorical questions to ask in response to the question of the men from Bethel. And he offers a very candid point. You were not fasting for the right purposes. Your exile fasts were done with mixed motives at best. You were not fasting out of repentance nor faith. Not, not to mention those fasts were never commanded in Scripture. 
It's worth noting in later tradition in the Talmud and Jewish historians, there's a number of fasts that are added around various other atrocities that the Jewish people have endured through time. As well, it's worth noting that the fasts that I put in front of you, those are still commemorated today. But that said, these are later developments. And for Zechariah, this is now and in his present, the tradition developed around fasting, around the temple's fall. I mean, that's a fitting tradition. Why not fast? Fasting you do with mourning. You do fasting for other purposes of spiritual discipline as well to remind yourself that the Lord is your provider and so you go without food, you go without stuff as a part of your spiritual discipline. Sometimes you go without stuff as a part of mourning. So these are all fitting responses. But what was fitting seemed to have over time actually become watered down and compromised. And we know that there's a tendency to do that. A tendency to, you know, I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to get right with God. I'm going to fix this relationship. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And you get started really good. And then, you know, we're in February. How are those New Year's resolutions going, right? You know, we just, there's a tendency of that. Now, perhaps the tradition started well and it watered down. In any case, from divine revelation, from the only one who can see the human heart, God, God says, your motives were not good. And this was not the first time nor the last time that the Jewish prophet would confront not the first time or the last time that a Jewish prophet would confront the people for fasting with improper motives. In fact, this morning in our public reading of Scripture, we saw this in Isaiah 58. And pastorally, I, I, can I just pause and say, if you miss the public reading of Scripture on Sundays, let me just encourage you, set the alarm clocks earlier, go to bed earlier, do whatever, do whatever you need to do to get here on time for service. We begin with the reading of God's Word. God's Word is so important that we come and we have our hearts prepared with the reading. And the reading always fits what we're studying. So this morning we read Isaiah 58. And like I said, this wasn't the first time nor the last time in Isaiah 58, the, the prophet. We read the whole chapter. It's such a beautiful chapter. If you weren't here, if you didn't come to church on time, please read Isaiah 58. It enhances all of this. This all fits together. Your pastors, your leaders in the church... Sundays we're preparing a meal for you and the, the word is it's setting that and so in Isaiah 58 he's talking about that he's talking about fasting he says your hearts aren't in it it's not the first time it wasn't it wasn't going to be the last time that a prophet came uh, the, the great prophet Jesus Israel's Messiah the Redeemer Jesus, like Zechariah, confronted the empty ritualistic fasting of the day let me put Matthew chapter 6 in front of you and you call in Matthew chapter 6 this great passage where he, he speaks in this manner about these fasts. Apparently it's not on my slide. But anyway, in Matthew 6, I'll read it to you. When you fast, you do not look somber as the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces to show men that they're fasting. And I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but to your father only, who is unseen. And your father sees what is done in secret, and he will reward you. Jesus denounced them for fasting. Their motives were wrong. They were fasting to get attention from other people. That said, rather than looking at the text and thinking, oh, these people, look at what they were doing. They weren't fasting right. Oh, those Pharisees and Jesus, and they weren't fasting. Oh, Isaiah 58, yeah, they... The text is whispering to us. Listen. Listen. And then the Spirit is taking that volume of the whisper and turning it up. Listen. Listen. I'm talking to you. The Word. 
It's talking to us. When you sang this morning, where was it coming from? The fullness. When, when, we, when we prayed this morning, when our brother Landon prayed this morning, where was my heart? When I came in this morning to the service, you know, where was my heart? When I pass the offering box, when I give, where's my heart? When I, when I serve, what, what's my heart in service? What, what, where is this coming from? When I, when I fast, when I fast, where, where is this coming from? Now, now th this week, I've got to immerse myself in the text. I've I got to study the text to stand before you to, to teach the Word of God. It's a great honor. It's a huge responsibility. And so, as, I, as I'm preparing all week to teach this, I, I see the text is talking about fasting. I go, I need to live this text so I can stand before the people. So let me, let me fast this week. Let me commit days of fasting. Days of fasting. So I can really immerse myself in this text. That's what preachers should do. You want to immerse yourself in the text. So I find myself on Monday fasting. And you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about, you know, this is good because Super Bowl Sunday, I had a bunch of extra calories. And so now, you know, it's gonna, this is going to work out. You know, it's going to work out. You know, I'll, you know, I'll go, you know, because, you know, I'm, I'm trying to prepare myself for preaching, you know. But really, I'm thinking about how I'm just compensating for the overeating that I did on Sunday. And then at a certain point in fasting, you know, I'll spare you the lecture on how hormones and stuff work. You know, the hunger pains sort of go away. And you go, you know, I, I can keep this going for another day or so. I'll just, you know, keep going. And, you know, this is going to work out great for the scale. You know, my New Year's resolution to get this COVID baby off of me. And, then, you know, but, you know, uh, doing it for, you know, for, for the right reasons. And I'm reading the text and I'm just getting beat up by it. I can't fast. I can't do it. I want to do something pure, but there's always something in me that's messing it up. I want to give. I want to give like Christ as he bled out on the cross, and I, I want to do it like he did it, but there's always something in me that's messing it up. And I, and I hear the prophet talking to Israel, and I, oh, he's talking to me. Oh, but it's even worse for me because I have a greater revelation than the prophet Moses. I have Jesus. I have a greater covenant than the covenant that was given to Abram and, and David and Moses. I have the covenant that is in Christ. I should be without excuse. I have the Spirit of God living in me. And you start feeling the weight. And that listen, 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 listen gets louder. And you start to feel the weight of the law on you. And you're supposed to. You're supposed to hear the weight. You're supposed to hear you fall short. You're supposed to hear you can't do it. You're supposed to hear, verse 6, when you eat and drink, don't you do it for yourselves? And then you hear the gospel. And you hear Christ. Oh, he fasts 40 days perfectly. And he's tempted to eat. And he says, the word is my bread and he did that for you. He did that for you. Because you can't. And because apart from him doing that for you, 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 would, you would be left in your sins. You would be dead. You would deserve that. You would have that coming. And so all who are hearing me today know this. And you should know this in your heart, in your conscience. 
You cannot fulfill the law of God. You cannot. The law of the Lord is good. It's good. His law is good, but we hear it, and we know if we're honest with ourselves, we don't do it. We need someone who has done it for us. Come to Christ. Cry out to him for forgiveness. He will set you free. The men of Bethel, they don't come with the right motive. They say, not, 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 you know, not, we're, we're falling short in this area or whatever. They say, no, no, we're doing good. Shall, shall we weep and abstain? Can we just, you know, be sad and kind of, you know, stop doing this? Not only were their motives wrong, but they were looking for an out. Can we stop doing this? And the prophet asked, when did you start? You never even started. As a matter of fact, if you want to truly come with good ritual, let me tell you what God requires. And so we move on to the text to, from the ritual and the purpose of the ritual, which they weren't doing, to the revelation and the point. Draw your eyes at the text. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. The Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your heart against one another. He exposes their empty ritual by pointing out tangible, tangible social evidence. If you were here for the public reading of Scripture, if you came to church on time, Isaiah 58 does the same thing. He starts going, he starts going for it. Oh, you're fasting. Oh, you're fasting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, look, at, look, at, look at justice in your society. You see, you can see the heart of someone uh, 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 in, in those tangible areas. But you can't see the heart of someone in something that's sort of intangible. I'm fasting. I can't see your heart. I'm singing. I can't see your heart. I'm praying. I, I see your head bowed, but I don't know what's going on in your heart. But you can see how they behave in society. I can see justice and kindness and compassion and care for widows and orphans. You have compassion. What about the widows and the orphans and the strangers and the poor? What, what about that? It reminds me of James chapter 1. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet doesn't bridle his tongue, I can see your tongue. I can see how you speak. I can see how you post. Your religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The people were stained by Babylon. But without the revelation of the prophet, you couldn't see it. Everything looked nice. Look at their houses. Look at their lives. Look at their outfits. Look, they look great. You know, they've been fasting. They're skinny and their, their, their skin is all glowing. You know, they look so great. Everything's fine on the outside, but they weren't on the inside. It shouldn't take a prophet to remind them that they didn't get into exile by being spiritual. Further, it shouldn't take a prophet to tell them that they aren't going to get out of it by being spiritual, but rather by telling them the law of God comes against you. Do not, do not appeal to your own works of righteousness. Throw yourself at the mercy of the king. And when grace changes you, it will make you more gracious to others. When his mercy changes you, it will make you more merciful to others. And that concerns me in our divided culture today, particularly among Christians in it, who sound just like the world, attacking and tribalizing, and you over there, and you're doing this, and you don't see this, and I see this, and you're wrong about this. The pe people are, are, are getting ripped, and they're getting uh, tossed apart, but when you receive mercy, all of that you stops, and you become a person who responds in mercy to others. So when the yous are doing their thing, you go, oh, but I would be there apart from the grace of God. I should respond mercifully to them. The people seemingly had worship and prayers and fasting and devotion to the word. 
That, I mean, they, they had those things, but their mercy was missing. Faith without works is dead. It's just that simple. People can make spirituality so difficult. You want to get more spiritual, read this book, do this, do this, do this. I love the way that the prophet Micah simplified it when he said in Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. The humility was not there to those who Zechariah addressed, but they were busy you know, caring for their stuff and living for themselves. They were happy to use their money and their lives and their gifts for anything and everything besides honoring God's law, besides living on less so that they could give more, and above all, extending God's mission. Look at verse 11. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and they stopped their ears from hearing. They made their hearts like a flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had spoken by His Spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, a great wrath. Put your nose in the text. Read the text. Came from the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, just as He called, they, they would not listen and they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts, but I scattered them with, with a storm went across the nations that they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them so that no one went back and forth for they made pleasant, the pleasant land desolate. He's reminding them what happened to their grandpapas. What reminded them to those in the pre-exile who went into exile. You guys are, are, are going into the same thing. You guys are falling into the same thing. So now chapter 7 is a heavy one where the law gets lifted on them. And I said to myself, I can't end a sermon on chapter 7. I need for you to see. I've already proclaimed to you. We need Christ. Christ fulfills the law for us. And so... so we're going to read chapter 8. We're going to move fast. Trust me. We're going to see the restoration in Providence as he, chapter 7, lifts the law and shows them, you guys fall short. And then in Zechariah chapter 8, we have a series of seven oracles that are laid side by side to God's justice and judging sin. And in his mercy and in his grace, in his unfolding of his promises, we're, we're, going, to see, we're going to see that from their failure in fasting, we're going to see future fruition Hence the title, Future and Fasting, Fasting and Future. Let's move quickly. Chapter 8, verse 1. The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord of the hosts comes saying, Say to the Lord, thus says the Lord, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth. And, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Zechariah speaks of God's love for the people. In, fight, in spite of their, their lack in fasting, their lackadaisical living, they, I still love you. I'm still jealous for my people. A lover is jealous for the affection of his beloved. That's proper and basic to, to, to love. If my children were calling another man daddy, I, I would be jealous for that. They're my children. They call me dad. If, if my wife went out on Valentine's Day with another guy, I would be jealous. That's a right thing to have you, when you have an affection for your beloved. Moderns hear the word jealous and they think of envy or something. They think of covetousness. It's not that. This is a loving jealousy. I love my people. I will, I will, I will protect my people. That's what love does. You're jealous for them. You protect them. In fact, I told you earlier, I tell you what the word, the Lord of hosts, that title means, hosts. It's a title that speaks of protection. The Lord of hosts speaks of his heavenly army that, 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 that he has, that he protects his people with. 
So Zechariah in this chapter is going to say, I love you, and you guys are making a mess, but I'm going to bring this to pass. Thus says, verse 4, the Lord of hosts, the old women will sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand, and, 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 and because of his age, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. I was reminded of the, uh, from a preacher this week of G.K. Uh, Campbell, the great preacher, and he said that when you want to get a glimpse of the kingdom of God, he said, don't go into a room where adults are praying, but go into a street where kids are playing. If you want to know about the kingdom, watch the kids. Jesus said essentially the same thing when the children were in their midst. You must become as a child to enter the kingdom of God, Matthew 18, 3. And in the kingdom age, crime is going to be eradicated. Children will play in the streets freely. I love the sound of children on my block. I love that. It just reminds you that a day is going to come where you don't have to worry about, you know, some crazy person walking down the street or, you know, helmets and cars or whatever. Like, they'll just play freely. He's looking forward to a time that theologically we call the millennium, when the Messiah comes and peace will be established. Draw, draw, your, draw your eyes at the text. We need to move fast. Thus says the Lord of the hosts, is it so difficult in the sight of the remnant of the people in those days? Will it be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I'm going to save my people from the land, from the east and the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, and those who are listening these days to the word of the mouth of the prophets, and those who spoke in the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, and to the end, the temple might be built. And before those days there was no wage for man and any wage for animal and for him who went out and came in there was no peace because of his enemies and I sent men against one another but now I will not uh, treat the remnant of the people as in the former days declares the Lord for there will be peace. There will be peace for the seed and the vine will yield its fruit and the land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due and I will cause the remnant of the people to inherit all things. The future He's going to bring it. And it will, it will come about in those days, verse 13, uh, just as you were in a curse among the nations, O house of Judah, O Israel, that I will save you and you will become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, just as I purpose to do uh, and, and harm with your fathers, provoke me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts. I have not relented, so I have purpose in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. You came to me with your heart all dark, trying to appeal to your works. Oh, we're fasting, oh, we're fasting, you know, whatever, you know. The prophet says, no, you're wrong, you stand condemned. And then the prophet says, listen, let me tell you about how God loves you and how he's good and how in spite of you, he's going to make everything right. Verse 16, these are the things that you should do. Speak truth to one another, judge with truth and judgment for peace on your gates, let alone, you know, don't, none of you devise evil against the heart of another. Do not love perjury, for these are the things that I hate, declares the Lord. Zechariah calls the people, hey, you come. God is good. He's going to make things right. Come in repentance of faith, and now you go back out. And the same way that he said, your society is a mess, your relationships are a mess, you, you go out, you, res you respond in repentance, and you go and you live out in your faith. The passage closes with this millennial language of when the Messiah is going to come and restore all things. And he starts to speak. This is the next point on your outline of the rejoicing of the people. Look at verse 18. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth. They're going to become joy and gladness and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love 
truth, and peace. Those fasts that you want to get out of, those fasts that seem like drudgery, the, the, no, no, it all comes full circle now. When the Messiah comes, there's just going to be joy. We're going to have new hearts. He pours out His Spirit. There's going to be a great revival. The nations of the world are going to come. Verse 20, thus says the Lord of the hosts, it will be that the peoples will come and the inhabitants of the city and the inhabitants of one another will go to one another. Let us go and entreat the favor of the Lord and seek the Lord of the hosts. And I will go with so many peoples in the might of the nations. They will seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and will entreat the favor of the Lord. In the millennium, the, the Gentiles will come. And, and, and in this age now, as we're awaiting the Messiah to come and His kingdom come and, and to establish these things, we're actually a foreshadowing of that. Look around the room. We have the nations in the room. We have Gentiles in the room who have inherited the promises of Israel and, and who continue to, to pray for the restoration of Israel. Verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from all nations will grasp the garment of a Jew, saying, we want to go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. Grabbing on the, the garments of the people. And living in this age, we're waiting for the kingdom to come. We're waiting for these things to be restored. The Jewish apostle Paul was wrestling with this in his lifetime. As he loved the people, he was, he was Jewish, and he saw the rejection of the Messiah, and his heart was heavy for them. And he cried out in Romans, Has Israel been cast away? And by divine word of the Lord, certainly not. The word of the Lord says. And so we live in this day and we wait that day and we read chapter 7 and we think of how Israel had a dark heart but we think of how God was good and brought them back to the land and how God said, I'm bringing you to the land. I'm going to build this. And God prophesied over them of greater things that would come even down the line. And we think on this side of the cross of Calvary where his blood was shed for us, where he was rejected by his own people but called us unto himself, how do we respond? We see law in chapter 7. We see grace in chapter 8. We respond to law and grace as we close this message. You know, you read a passage that says the problem in the Middle East is going to be restored with the Messiah. And you see on the news to this day the problem of the Middle East, the M-E. Let us be reminded that the problem of the M-E is not the Middle East, it's the M-E, it's me. I'm a sinner. And I have a tendency to try and do and obey in order to merit favor. And I'm told in the Word of God time and time again that that's not how it works. And I come on Lord's Day to drink this cup with you to remind me that's not how this works. My works would have blood on my hands, but this cup has blood in it that washes me of that. The Gospel frees us from this. And to quote Zechariah chapter 7, verse 6, what did he say? He said, when you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? With the caution of the prophet, we come and we open the cup and we say, oh Lord, set us free from ourselves. You see, salvation is a rescue from the penalty of sin and death. Salvation is also a rescue from its power. Oh Lord, free us from its power as we partake and remember your body that was broken for us. As we pull back the cup. We talked about the temple and innocent things dying for the guilty. The sacrifices, lambs and goats and bulls, bleeding out. Those were all shadows of what was to come, signs of what was to come. They were pointing to something. 
Those had to be repeated. You, you sin, you got to do it again. And you sin and you do it again. But the ultimate sacrifice has come that needs no repeating. That's why this cup is a memorial to us. We're remembering what has been done. We're not doing it over. It's been done once and for all. He cried out on the cross, it is finished. And so we drink the cup and we proclaim it is finished. We drink the cup and we proclaim Zechariah 8 is yet to come. The children will dance in the streets. The old will dance in the streets. The nations will come to the most heated place in the globe and humble themselves and be restored. All of creation will be restored. God will raise a remnant up from fallen humanity and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. Bethel. Remember what I said about Bethel. A picture of paganism. Out of the house of Bethel, the Lord brought people to the land. Out of the place of paganism, he brought those two men to the land to make this profound point. It is a great reminder to us of how the Lord is sovereign and how the Lord just draws people to himself. And, and in fact, of, of speaking of the land of Bethel, we saw in Ezra chapter 2 when we were studying Ezra, in Ezra chapter 2 there's a listing of the tribes and those who came back to the land to help. And in Ezra 2.28 we read of 223 loyal Jewish people who came from the land of Bethel. While these two men came from the land and had mixed motives, the Lord still had 223 godly people in that land that he was using for his purposes. I say this at, at the close of things to remind us that our church is a long ways from Jerusalem. And there's a tendency to think in a dark city like such where we live that, you know, somehow we're alone or, you know, God's not doing anything. Look, God was bringing pagans out of Bethel to restore his temple. Surely God can raise up a revival in Los Angeles if we respond to his word, if we sacrifice for mission. And we do so knowing we'll, we'll do it with mixed hearts and mixed motives and we just keep coming back to God and we say, be merciful to us, be merciful to us. We don't deserve this, but you're so good to us. We have work to do, brothers and sisters. The work begins in us. Let's pray and seek the Lord to transform our hearts and let's offer him a songs as we close our service. Father, we thank you. For chapter 8 of Zechariah that reminds us of a future that is secure. We hope not like secularists watching the Dow Jones or watching the news for things to improve. We hope knowing that the future is secure in you and Zechariah 8 will happen. You will restore your people. You will restore the fallen earth. You will in your jealous love protect and raise up a people for your praise and lord lord by your grace you saw fit before the foundations of the world to include us in that plan we are not worthy we are so humbled to be here this morning to hear about you to talk about you to sing to you lord our, our hearts are more wicked and more powerful we 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 we, we cannot we cannot choke them out we cannot suppress them. We need your work this morning in us. Your word has been preached. Your gospel has been preached. We have heard your law. We know we are condemned. We know Christ is our liberator and redeemer. Now, Lord, we beg of you, do a work in our hearts. Set us free. Wash us. Empower us. Break, break the shackles of the things that have us 
off mission and the things that have us going back into places of darkness that you have delivered us from. Set us free, we pray. And, and we offer these songs of worship unto you, knowing, knowing that, that, that our hearts might not be purely in the right place. So Lord, receive these, these humble songs that we offer you and work in our hearts as we sing. In Christ's name, amen.